Church, it's my privilege to introduce today's speaker for you. And as I do that, we have some ushers who are walking down the aisle. If you would like a Bible, because we will be in the Bible today, uh, we'd love for you to have that and take that with you. Dr. Alejandro, better known as Alex Mendez, has made it his lifelong mission to reach all people with the gospel by planting healthy churches and equipping leaders to bring transformation to their communities. Raised in the U.S.-Mexico border town of Laredo, Texas, Alex developed a passion for serving immigrants and people in the margins of society. He graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a Master of Science in Social Work and then went on to receive a Master of Theology and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. In the last 25 years, he started several interdenominational organizations that serve the vulnerable and bring together coalitions of Christians to live out the gospel of compassion and justice. Alex founded Immigrant Hope, an organization that equips churches to provide legal services to immigrants, as well as Gateway, an informal theological training program for non-English speakers. He was also one of the founding members of the Immigration Alliance, a gathering of pastors, churches, and community leaders collaborating to serve immigrants. Alex is currently serving as the executive director of the All Peoples Initiative in the Evangelical Free Church of America. That's us. This national coalition of multi-ethnic leaders is committed to disciple-making, gospel impact, and community transformation. He serves on the board of the Navigators and the National Association of Evangelicals, and for Alex, following Jesus is all about bringing the Great Commission and the Great Commandment together to help build great communities. He and his wife, Julie, live in San Antonio, and they enjoy hosting friends from all over the world. Alex, will you join me here on the stage? And friends, I met Alex years ago when he and I sat down with a pastor uh, in our community from Sudan, and we formed a partnership where we were able to support this church. And Alex, brother, you have been a friend to me and a friend of this church for many years, it's great to have you. Love you. Love you My wife went to this church. She was part of the Navigators. And before I came, she was reading to me the history of uh, Pastor Hess and how he really encouraged and fomented uh, the, the college ministry. And she started going through all of them. And I, I love uh, this church. I actually know North Dakota very, very well. Uh, I worked, the first ministry I ever worked was along the Red River Valley, uh, evangelizing uh, the, the migrant workers that used to come through here. So I was here every summer and I would travel a lot of the roads. I know Colfax, I know Horace, I know Williston, I know, I know, I know. But I am so indebted to this state for my wife. She is a, a Norwegian babe, like nobody's business. Uh, we took the ancestry.com, I did, she wouldn't, for two reasons. Number one, she knows that she's 100%. And then she proved that she was 100% Norwegian because she wouldn't pay the $69. <laughs> so, double proved that she is who she said she is. I know the reason why she married me though. She was a major, major fan of the bison. And this is their sign. This is also the sign of the Texas Longhorns. So when we got married, she didn't have to switch. You know, she just rolled with it. And she's a fanatical football fan. In fact, uh, one time when we were planting our first church, they, uh, this couple invited themselves to our house and said, hey, uh, can we watch the Texas Longhorn game with you? 
And so we invited them over and uh, they walk in and the wife had brought this bag to knit with. And she says, Julie, let's go to the kitchen and let the guys watch football. And when she walked past, she was looking at me, kind of like Jesus looked at Peter when the cock rode three times. And I knew I didn't want those people to ever live, leave. And she came, she pointed in my chest and she said, don't ever invite a woman to my house when I'm watching football. <laughs> we found out that uh, Hispanic and Nordic are flammable. We had five daughters in five years and three months. One set of twins, so it's not that bad. It's, it's, it's bad enough, but not enough. And they were wonderful little Viking Hispanic girls. They make uh, lefso with her. They even throw a jalapeno every now and then into the cranberry relish, just for me. Um, I learned that I can live with diversity and lots and lots of love. I am married to my extreme opposite. She would probably be very angry with me now sitting right there. Fortunately, she's far away. Hi, babe. I know I'm gonna get it when I get home, but I got here and I went to go visit the grave out uh, in Kindred, between Kindred and, and Leonard, her parents. I loved them so much. Um, I've got family here. Uh, my cousin plays the drums over here, Sophie. And I think there's even Lucille. Is Lucille here anywhere? Some other people that I know come here. All that to say is, I've had my eyes on you for a long time. And even if I'd never get invited back, I've got a picture. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that the gospel trumps everything. Father, that you would be guiding us today to hear your word, to put all other things aside, to be able to hear what you have to say through your word. Help me step out of the way, Lord, to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. You might want to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. And I'm going to move fast because there's three points that I want to talk about. And I am going to hit on the catch-22 phrase, and it's in Proverbs chapter 4, but I'll get to that in a minute. So, you, you, I'm, a, I'm a real fan of church history, and one of the things that I've noticed is that the gospel seems to be expanding. So it went from, from uh, Jerusalem to Antioch, to the seven churches in Asia, to Rome, to Europe, up to um, even Ireland. And I wish I could say that the gospel light was never extinguished. But it has, it has. Uh, the light went off in Jerusalem, the light went off in Antioch, the light went off in the seven churches. I've been to where the seven churches are. And I've always marveled at why that light was extinguished. I wanna talk about that today. In John chapter four, very early in Jesus's ministry, I believe that he gave in there a very important lesson that I think if the church were really ever to reclaim that, we wouldn't have to worry about the light being extinguished. So Jesus is going, he's going through Samaria to get to Judea 
And instead, they usually make a trail around Samaria because no self-respecting rabbi goes through the country of Samaria because they were semi-Jews, they were transplants, they were hated, they were despised. So Jesus sent the disciples into the city because he had an appointment with a woman. A lot of people call this passage the woman at the well. I think it has very little to do with the woman at the well. I think it has everything to do with the 12 disciples learning a lesson that they have to learn. And I think it's a lesson that we must take to heart ourselves with great humility, with great love. And so Jesus is is such an organic uh, evangelist. This woman comes out and it's noon and she comes by herself. There were plenty of wells in the city, but she was by herself coming out at noon, the hottest time of the day. And so she comes out and Jesus is sitting down and he simply asks her, do you know if you were to die today, if you would go to heaven? No, he didn't ask that. (laughs) He asks her, give me some water. And she says, why do you talk to me? Your people don't talk to my people. And Jesus goes on in verse 10. This is, look at John verse 10. This is critically important. One of the clearest gospel messages. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it says to you gives me the water, you would ask him and he would give you. Three part gospel presentation of clarity. If you knew the gift of God and who it says to you give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give it. In fact, that is the outline for the conversation with the woman at the well. So right off the bat, he says, if you knew who gives you this water, you would ask him and he would give it to you. Living water, something that bubbles forth. And uh, she is struggling with, well, well, what is this water that, are you greater than, than Jacob who gave us this water? And Jesus said to her that, uh, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again in verse 13. But whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is great water. It gives eternal life. It meets eternal thirst. And the woman who was used to coming out in the heat of the day, multiple times probably, said, give me this water. I don't understand it, but give it to me. So she understands that it is eternal life, living water. But remember, if you knew the gift and the giver, you would ask and he would give. She got the first point, it's living water. But she asked before she knew the giver, right? Do you get that? And so right away, he asks her, go and bring your husband. It kind of sounds out of the blue. Where did that come from? I mean, we're in a gospel presentation. Why are you telling her to bring her husband now? Actually, it was to the point because she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you've answered well, for you have had five and you're working on your sixth one. You're a sinner in other words. And I appreciate the fact that you sped the truth. You see, the who of the equation is the Savior who forgives sins. 
And until you can understand that the Savior comes to people who say they're sinners, you can't really know who he is. He's the sin bearer. So then she has this interesting idea. Says, wow, are you some sort of a prophet? Because uh, we really need to know. I mean, um, so uh, let me see. Our answers, uh, I can see that you're a prophet. Verse 20, our answers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And the woman, Jesus replied to me that the time is coming and now is when we will not worship here or in there, but we will worship in spirit and truth. And then she said, first guess is off. Second guess is, uh, we know when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. Kind of like what you're doing us right now. And Jesus said to her, I am he. All of this is dealing with who is the giver. He is the sin bearer. He is the Messiah. If you knew the gift, eternal life, and the giver, the sin bearer and the Messiah, you would ask. Then she takes off. Probably took off because the disciples had come around and they were making all kinds of eyes at him because he was talking to this woman. It's going to ruin our PR. And so she took off and she goes into the city and gives one of the most corrupt gospel messages I have ever heard. Come see a man that told me everything I ever did. She heard it straight from the man. If you knew the gift, if you knew the giver, you would ask, he would give you eternal life. But she goes into the city and says, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And they all came out. I've really wondered. Did they come out because they wanted to know who was the fool that didn't know everything this woman ever did? Possibly. Or, or were they so fascinated by the transformation in this woman's life? Fearful, timid, handpicked by the other women, afraid, would go out of the city for the but now she comes back and there's this change in her. No longer is she ashamed, no longer is she timid. She is bold, she has been transformed. Nothing speaks more powerful than people's lives who are changed. So she came back and is coming back to Jesus with the city. Now the disciples had gone into the village and they came back with chips, mayonnaise, chorizo, menudo. It's kind of like lutefisk, menudo and lutefisk. My family used to feed me nulefisk and I thought they were testing me because it was so bad. And maybe they'd read somewhere that menudo was just like lutefisk. They came back with all the food, but nobody from the city, nobody. They didn't even like those people, but they probably gave their money and walked out of there as fast as they can. But here comes this woman who had met the Savior, the Messiah, who had eternal life, and even if her gospel presentation was a little bit off, the impact was tremendous. 
And so then the disciples said, hey, eat some of this food. And Jesus said, I have food you don't know anything about. Well, that was obvious. And Jesus in verse 35, if you want to look that up. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? But I say to you, open your eyes and look on the fields. Some translations say, behold. Some say, but. It is a emphatic transition. And that verse really had an impact on me. You see, nobody has to tell farmers in North Dakota to go look at the fields. <laughs> My father-in-law and brother-in-law, they, were, they knew exactly when it was dry enough to get in the fields. They knew exactly when they should cultivate. They knew exactly when to till. They knew exactly when to weed. They knew exactly when to put fertilizer. Nobody had to tell them. You see, the first part of that message, do you not have a saying, four months and comes the harvest? Those are the field that we know. Those represent the people that we know. They're the people that root for the bison. They're the people that can eat hot dogs and all these other kinds of food. We know why they don't go to church. We know all different kinds because they're our kind of people. We know them, we see them regularly. But Jesus pivots and I says, but I say to you, open your eyes and look on the harvest. Because about that same time, the men are coming from the city and they're all dressed in white. And so it looks like a crop is coming to them. And Jesus is saying, look at them. You didn't like them. You didn't want them. You hated them. You called them the dogs. They've been there all along. You didn't see them. You couldn't see them. But I sent laborers into that field. And now you get to harvest that. Interesting, two fields. One we know, one we're like, and then there's the other one. It's not just about race, it's about nationalities, it's about languages, it's about generations. Diversity has nothing to do with just one thing. And so here is Jesus saying, open your eyes. And I wanna tell you something, they didn't. They didn't. So I wanna transition now to a passage. But I want, before I do that, I wanna read something that really ties in. Just give me a minute. You see, I actually lost my sermon. Uh, so it's kind of fun when you lose your sermon, you know. I say that that same passage where it says, behold, I sent you open your eyes. I think that actually touches exactly where the catch 22 is. Proverbs 22, four says, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. You see, in order to see this other harvest, you have to be humble. You have to look beyond what's normal to you. You have to have what I call cultural humility. It's not just that they're not unseen, it's that they're there and you can see it. It, it requires cultural humility. And the result of that is riches and honor and life and a bountiful harvest. And so when we consider 
catch 22, we're also considering the fact that humility is one of the most essential tools to be able to see people that are different from us. Moving beyond the politics of the day, moving beyond the critical race theory, moving beyond all these other things and see people as they are. That requires humility, cultural humility. Now I want to pivot and look at chapter of Acts. And I want you to see this is the command and this is the result. So in Acts chapter two, we see that Pentecost came on a day when all Jewish men were required to be in Jerusalem. And there were people from all nations, all different languages. They were all Jews, but they were all different languages. And as we know, the spirit came and people preached and they heard in their own language, the message of God. Wonderful. Except we get to chapter six and we find the first food fight. It didn't start in your high school. It actually started in Acts chapter six. And so we have this weird thing going on. Imagine they divide the church in half and they feed the widows of one group and not the widows of the other group. This one group were Jews, but Hebraic Jews, hometown widows. These other Jews were Hellenistic Jews. These are people that were living among the, the, the Greek world. They worshiped the same God, they read the same Bible, but they were considered outsiders. So actually the first division in the church had nothing to do with color or age or gender. It had everything to do with inside and outside. Jews, just the same. And I love what the apostles did. They said, pick men full of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting when they picked these people and the number one qualification, the only qualification was that they are full of the Holy Spirit. But when you look at the names of the people that were chosen, they're all Hellenistic Jews. Philip, Stephen, and go on to all the other ones. They're all Hellenistic names. Now, if I was a Hellenistic Jew, I would have said, now's our turn. You know, it's like the election cycle is over and now the other party won. And now we're gonna get what we wanted that the other side didn't get. But remember the qualification, men full of the Holy Spirit. They did what was right. They did what was right for everybody. Now, what's interesting is I wanna move on through Acts. And what was interesting is these godly Hellenistic Jews were full of the Holy Spirit. Right after that, we see the story of uh, Philip and Stephen. And Philip went out, and I'm not sure I'm getting in the chronological order, but Philip went out and he started evangelizing other Hellenistic Jews. And he was having a great impact. Not only that, but later on we find out that he went on the road and he spoke to a, a, a Ethiopian eunuch. So he was a Hellenistic Jew, probably not Hellenistic, he was an African Jew, and, but he was an out of, the, out of the country person. 
and he led him to the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit sent him to Philistia. So the, the Hellenistic Jews stayed close to Jerusalem. The Hebraic Jews stayed close to Jerusalem. But we start seeing there's this movement going out to different people and the impact of that. And then we see the story of Stephen who went and preached to the Freeman Synagogue. Freeman Synagogue probably were Hellenistic Jews that had been soldiers with Alexander the Great who had become Jews. And so he preaches in there and they, they killed him. He gave a wonderful testimony and they killed him. And right in there, we find out later on that, that Paul was collecting the stuff. And because of that, there was a great persecution that arose and the, the, the apostles stayed in the city, but the, the other Jews went and spoke. The Hellenists, it says, the Hebraic Jews went and spoke to other Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews went and spoke to other Hellenistic Jews. And then those Jews that were Hellenists that were saved went and spoke to out and out Gentiles. People that were not of the same religion. People that were not of the same race. And so we see diversity becoming a force multiplier. A force multiplier. For example, in World War I, the force multiplier was a machine gun. If you've read much about World War I, you hear about the trenches and the machine gun that would kill people indiscriminately by the hundreds and thousands. They hadn't learned how to adjust, how to do guerrilla warfare. And so there were many, many people that were killed by machine guns. In World War II, the force multiplier was the tank. And so we start seeing these force multipliers that people were looking for. Well, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we find that diversity was becoming the force multiplier. We see that in John chapter four also, where the disciples went and came back with the food, but the other came back with the city. You see, the objective is not diversity. Are you hearing me? The objective of making disciples is not diversity. And that throws people for a loop when I say it. The objective is not diversity or multi-ethnic, but when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He not only commanded it, he lived it. He spoke to the woman at the well. He spoke to the Syrophoenician woman. He healed the son of the widow of Nahum. He went through the Decapolis, the 10 cities of the, of the Gentile area. He, he saved and healed the Gennesarean. Jesus was always out and about with other people. Not only other people, sinners. He was called the friend of sinners. It was part of his DNA to reach everybody and anybody. Yes, he would go to the Jews first. And then we have Paul, who in chapter eight and nine is called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And we see in verse 10, where Peter, through the lesson of the sheet that was lowered down, was taught and took it back to Jerusalem. What I have called, what I have chosen and saved, you must not call common. And so we see the, the, the practice 
of the force multiplier was diversity. Diversity is not the issue. The two harvests, the two harvests, making sure that we make disciples of all people. Some of that required intentionality. And we see that come to a great culmination in, John, in uh, Acts chapter 13. So here we are, Antioch then became the real first other church outside of Jerusalem. And when you look at chapter 13 of Acts, and I'm gonna take too long to get to it, but they're having a prayer meeting and they said that they had six teachers. Two of them were Hebraic Jews, Paul and Barnabas. Two of them were Africans, Niger and another name. And then two of them were Gentiles. One was the, um, uh, a, a worker, a political worker with Herod. And so they had a tremendous amount of diversity in their leadership. I can imagine the church, all different kinds of languages, all kinds of culture. I can imagine the food was all different. And so here's this church that's having a prayer meeting and they're all united. And so when God decides to show up and, and speak, it wasn't a strange thing when they hear, set aside for me, Paul and Barnabas, to reach the world. It was just another strange tongue and they were used to it. And so we see then from Antioch moving out, the ripples, the ripples, the ripples. That other, that diversity isn't just made to be an irritant to us. That diversity fuels the progress of the gospel. What happens though when we turn it around and America now has so many immigrants, in fact, 10% of Fargo right now are immigrants. By the year 2060, 95%, 95% of the future labor force will be coming from immigrants. So instead of Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What happens when it's turned around? And Samaria won't stay in Samaria. America's changing, whether we like it or not. And it's not just because of immigration. Ethnicity is changing and growing. They say by the year 2042, America will be majority minority. If you love America, with all of its warts, which I do love, and if you want the gospel to continue, then we must exercise humility that gives riches, humility that loves culture, humility that's willing to endure a little bit of difference. In parting, one of the things I wanna remind people is that we're here just for a season. Just for a season, this isn't everything. The scriptures tell us that we have 70 years. 70 years, some more, some less. I got three more years. I'm already living on borrowed time. Traveling 200 days a year, wears on the body. 70 years. And then we see eternity. And yet sometimes we live 
as if America is gonna be forever. The best part of America is Jesus Christ, amen? The days of Leave it to Beaver and Joan Cleaver are gone. It was never real anyway. But if America is changing, if he has brought immigrants, we need to understand that they are a force multiplier. Caucasian people are still gonna be the largest ethnic group. We shouldn't fear that. We shouldn't fear that. If we unite our strength to their weakness, when they're strong and we're weaker, we're one church. Cultural humility, love. I think the church has gotten off mission with God. We've started acting and listening to politicians and to the radio show host as if it's truth. Jesus said, those who worship me worship in spirit and truth. I have a bad story for you. A lot of what we hear in news and politics is entertainment. It's almost like football. Jesus didn't get involved. Listen to me, one more story. When Jesus was on earth, there was slavery, misogyny, political infighting. One of his disciples was in politics and there was Roman oppression. And I want you to notice something and I defy you to give me an illustration of it. Jesus never gave a systemic solution. He never said, we need to swap the oppressors with the oppressed. He never said liberation theology. He never talked about critical race theory. What he showed in his life though, was humility, cultural humility. He went to other people, he loved them and served them. The Bible doesn't tell us to separate into different groups. The Bible says in Ephesians, one church, one faith, one communion. Just reach out, just open your eyes and see. And those people that are different from you because of color, because of generation, because of language, because of nationality, they might be the force multiplier that will help America be what Jesus wants them to be. So today, I want to really commend to you this passage that says, recognize the two harvests. One, we're not used to seeing. We can't appreciate it. But God does. I believe diversity is not the objective of the gospel. But when we treat people as Jesus called us to treat them, we will have diversity if our gospel is a Jesus gospel. And so I commend to you today, not critical race theory, not Democrats or Republicans, not who's gonna be the Supreme Court justice. I commend to you humility and love. The greatest force multiplier is us acting like Jesus among all people. Amen? Would you please stand and let me pray for you? Father in heaven, words fail. But your Holy Spirit never fails. There's some who have heard some of my words about politics and say, I'm lost. There are others who are afraid 
of diversity, of color. Perfect love casts out fear. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on the prize. That we are here just for a little bit of time. It was said of David, he served your purpose in this generation and then he died. Help us be, Lord, like David, to know our purpose, our God-given purpose, and to serve it in our generation, in our time. And then, Lord, we pass and we will find out the words that we wanna hear. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. Fill this church, Lord, with your Holy Spirits like the deacons to be able to see both harvests. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, Ephesians chapter four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I wanna encourage you, church, to embrace that gift of God's grace and to serve him faithfully this week.